Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, a podcast all about the classic TV show The Prisoner. With me, Bex. And me, Eason. And rounding off our week of podcasts to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the show, we've got an interview with Michael Pickwode. And Michael Pickwode is a production designer. He's worked on a lot of classic British film and television. He was a production designer on With Nail and I. Um, he's done TV shows like Poirot, Lost in Austin but he's probably best known for being the production designer for the last seven years on Doctor Who. Yeah, it was great to chat with Michael. And he was here to talk to us really about the 2009 reimagining of The Prisoner, which obviously has uh, received a mixed response, to say the least, from Prisoner fans. But I think one thing that was really cool about it was actually the production design on it. So it was a real pleasure to talk to Michael about it his thoughts on how he made some of the decisions regarding the actual design of the show, um, the location shooting, and it was just really great to find out a little bit about that because I think it's one of the very obvious redeeming features of uh, that 2009 miniseries. Yeah, and Michael and his team were nominated for an Excellence in Production Design Award from the Art Directors Guild for the miniseries. It, it is a show that looks very beautiful and it was interesting to find out some of the challenges of taking a show that is as iconic as The Prisoner and trying to do a bit of a different twist on it and some of the influences that went into the design of the village, um, some of the locations that they found all those remarkable buildings on and it was just a real pleasure to talk to him. And we should also point out that the first minute or so of the interview is a bit crackly. Uh, We recorded this from a Skype conversation where the connection was a bit dodgy at the beginning, but it does improve, so stick with it. Hope yeah. you enjoy. We're joined this time by Michael Pickwode, who was the production designer on the 2009 reimagining of The Prisoner. Welcome, Michael. Hello to you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. What's your first memory of seeing the original series of The Prisoner? I suppose it was very much black and white and tell me, what, what was the date? When was it? When was it? Was 60... 67. 67. Yes, yeah. so uh, what, yes, I just left, probably leaving or just left university at the time, so I remember things like Man from Uncle and other <laughs> things were hot on the thing and I sort of remember that I did. I remember seeing the prisoner and being wonderfully, interestingly confused by it, <laughs> as I think many people were. It, and it, actually, it's strangely, it's only as you went on that you realised that he wasn't really there. <laughs> <laughs> and even when we made the new series, mm-hmm. there were a great many people who still believed that he was actually physically in this village. Mm. See, which did cause some complications. <laughs> <laughs> so, how different was it years later seeing it in colour? Well, I haven't seen, I've seen, I, I suppose, presumably, I've never really watched, I've watched bits, I suppose if you watch The Prison now, you'd see it in colour, would you? If it's, if you... Yes. If the old one, you'd see it in colour, would you? The old one, yes. Yes. Yeah. I suppose in a funny way, you got so used to it, because black and white was colour when you watched it, because you had to imagine what colours were, that it's not usually a great shock. <laughs> <laughs> so you've done production design on some really iconic film and TV, like Doctor Who, With Nail and I, Poirot, Lost in Austin... How did you come to work on the 2009 miniseries? 
Um, well, I was asked, yes, through my agent, I was asked to um, go and see the director and the producer. And it was a very long off and on thing. I mean, I was sort of half offered it, it because then they weren't making up a decision because there wasn't the money or it hadn't been decided how it was going to be done. And then um, and I was doing other things. And then suddenly I got a call to say they were actually doing what I, because I thought I couldn't commit to it because it wasn't a committed date, if I remember. And they say, oh, we're doing now, would you like to do it? So I sort of thought well, it was probably quite a good idea. <laughs> so as a production designer, what stage of pre-production do you come in on to start developing the overall look of a show? Well, as this was very much, a lot of it was based on imaginative sets and strange settings. It was very early on. And I went on a record with the director, it was then John Jones, and we went round Slackerman, which had been previously found as a location by others when it was at a, in a previous life of the series. They, they, at one point, they'd been looking. And in fact, Slackerman was a very perfect choice to be different, but the same. It was an out-of-place out place, place, like Port Merriam, which is an unreal place. It's very artificial. And Slackerman, although it's in the middle of, on the coast of Namibia, was built by the Germans in 1910 in the latest Jürgen Steel style in the middle of Africa. So, I mean, it was very, very bizarre. There were German nameplates, Kaiser Wilhelmstrasse, a German church, <laughs> and all the locals would speak to you in German still. Well, it's long, long since ceased to be anything to do with Germany. I mean, it's a very... And the buildings were these modern, very Art Nouveau, sort of a bit like there's an architect called Olbrich whose designs they'd largely copied. And, I mean, it was, it was weird, but superb, because it was totally... It was toy town, in a way that Port Mary is toy town. It isn't but it's artificial and it's, yeah. it was just very suitable and the landscape around it was pretty remarkable <laughs> so it was you know very good so this was the town in namibia where a lot of the external work was filmed yeah where did you find those incredible triangular houses well they were actually in namibia in fact there was a photograph of somewhere in china where they built some dutch style holiday houses these were a-frame german style 1950s holiday houses I mean, absolutely for real. <laughs> it had this wonderful organised sense, as you might possibly expect, and which was perfect, of course, for the mindset of the village. Yes. So I, I remember watching it for the first time and seeing those aerial shots of, of the town and thinking, they can't possibly have built all of these for the set, and yet they don't look CGI, they look real. Where on earth is this? I mean, the only thing we really built there was the... We adapted various bits, but we built the... Solar Cafe was taken. Mm -hmm. We built that in Cape Town and it went up like a bottle German Hofhaus and got built, put together in, in Swagatland. And I read on the uh, AMC production diary that you had quite a few sandstorms during filming. How, how difficult was it coping with that when you're putting up sets? And... It was interesting. I remember being in the middle where we did the. I remember when we were. Well, there was going to be a balloon section, which then didn't happen, and that was one point in the desert, but there were various scenes in the sand dunes, and there's this wonderful place called where Dune 7 is, where people go on holiday in Namibia, which is quite dramatic. It's a very Lawrence for Arabia, <laughs> to say you've been lost in the middle of a desert. But I remember when we were putting the railway up, the strange bit of railway there was at one point, and go, we just got back into the car to go back, and we just had to stop, and we, you couldn't see more than three yards in front of you because of sand blowing up. <laughs> You just hope, at least you had mobile phones, but luckily for about half an hour it sort of died down and we could drive on. But it could be, it would have been fairly alarming. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So those were the ruins that were sort of out in the desert. There was the railway that went nowhere. There was that giant anchor that was out there. And for me, that was one of the most memorable sets of the series. And I remember thinking at the time what a pain it must have been to put up. Did, did they have to smooth out everyone's footprints after everyone had been around the set? Or? Sure. Uh, to, a de- to a degree, yes. One has to be, that's the trouble with sand and snow. Is, um, sand is easier than snow, I have to say. But um, <laughs> that's, these are the problems on filming. But no, the, the, the anchor was quite, it was only a wooden anchor. It was made in wood, so that went. And actually, the chain, we, I, I said, so it had to be a really big chain to match the anchor. So it was made out of polystyrene and it kept water annoying me. It was a wind blowing, which didn't help. <laughs> but luckily, it didn't look too. It, I think they managed to get, get away with it. But no, that was quite. A, there was meant to be. He was meant to be jumping off a boat, but then that, that was stuck in the desert, but that all changed. But I have to say, it was one of the more wonderful shots I got of this anchor standing in the middle of the desert. It's slightly ridiculous. Well, very prisoner like. You know. it, it was, it was, it really was. And. Another one of the most striking visuals is those sinkholes that start appearing. Um, how much of that was CGI and how much did you actually dig a hole in the ground? There was a couple of places where we were actually allowed to, we were actually allowed to dig some quite sandy soil. So it wasn't, you know, you know, fine places where one was going to be a building site and one was in the middle of nowhere. So no one minded, you know, we filled them in, obviously, but it was... You, know, you can't just go around digging big holes in people's back gardens, <laughs> but but it was actually um no it was it was quite good we could dig there was one quite big one I remember we dug that was well the concepts were quite were were quite were quite fun. How did the look of number two's very grand residence come about? Well, that the, the exterior we used there was what was the station hotel in it wasn't even the station I think at one time. Um, in Swackerman, which was this slightly strange, there was this very strange style of building. There were a lot of square pyramidal roofs, pointed roofs, as well as like parts of Romania. Actually, it was, and it was quite quite a dramatic building. And we actually built a wall, and we, it was in fact there was a bus a big car park, and we actually in front of it we built built the wall and the gates. We built and put grass down and, and, and gravel to make it look like a grand entrance to his mm-hmm. to his house. And the inside was a big set that we built in Cape Town. And that one big, there was a big space, we had a staircase to one side, and that became the bedroom and the study and another room, actually, eventually even the cellar, I think, we were taking it to bits. So it was, um, no, that was a seriously big, big set, that one. <laughs> and I read that the club that you see in, in some of the later episodes was actually in um, Cape Town? Yes, that was a, we went around all sorts of, most extraordinary clubs, I have to say. And we found a place in the end where we, uh, he wanted to be slightly sort of, slightly sort of retro, come metally sort of, you know, full of chains and bits and pieces. And then we built the bars and had the girls dancing in quite a discreet way, if I remember it was American television. So, yes. <laughs> but, but we did actually hang up, we did actually hang a penny farthing up. <laughs> um, I, I noticed that, and I noticed the kind of wry smile that, uh, number two gives when he sees it hanging yeah. from the ceiling, which I thought was really nice. Yes, there was some, no, there was some quite good bits, and then actually because the, the other there was very few things you could really copy from the first series. You know, but any was that I did when we had to build that area where he makes where McKellen as number two makes the speech and where the coffin is put in the end. There was a, in fact, we had to build this. There was a very sort of strange wall, in an artistic fashioned wall. In, um, <laughs> 
in the middle of this area, which was not particularly helpful. So I thought, well, we can build over it. And I built a rather German Baroque sort of open space with a big with the big doorways and entrances, and we just to make it make it look slightly unreal but quite elegant. But on the floor, I thought we've got to have a chessboard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Without saying anything, there was no re no reference to it. But also, I made the, the finials on the wall were all actually based on chess pieces. You see, I thought. Ah, yeah, there's wonderful little touches that you you notice if you see in the original series. Though things like the penny farthing, the labels on all of the food and drink. Oh yes, well that was it. Actually, that, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was finding a motif for the village, and it was based actually on the top of based on the this architect called. Carl Maria Olbrich, who worked in Darmstadt in Germany in the, the early 1900s, he built what were called the wedding towers for a German prince. His wedding tower, and the top of that became, I find, worked into, as a motif um. that we then put onto it, the map, the map which I had to draw in our flat. And so it became everything was stamped with this thing. And we then had various bits of art. Some places we had a can of a stack of beans. With the, with the emblem on it, and there's a warhole fashion. But it's quite fun to do that because it just gives a sort of slight touch to the print, you know. And the sort of one direct reference, I guess, to the original is in the first episode where you have this character, number 93, who is wearing the same famous piped blazer that number six wears in the original series. And one of the things that was most striking to me was when you see the inside of number 93's home and there are huge kind of stylistic touches that hark back to number six's home in the original so what was it like to design oh well yes i know yes we were looking yes there were a lot of photographs were scrutinized if i remember but it's always quite fun i've done that and dr who i've had to do or we had to do the first tardis or you had to do some bring back a set it's quite it's quite fun to emulate things that have been popular in in, in, in the past and there were but it was one of the 60s too you see that first series and say so kind of, whatever you do is right <laughs> you know that was quite fun and the, the overall look of the village where um you know people who watch the original uh, in color will see a very very bold sort of color scheme particularly for people's clothes in the village whereas with, with this one it seems to be much more of a kind of muted natural palette but then with those bold reds that you see in the taxis and the buses and in the diner. So how did that come about? Well, that was a sort of, there was a sort of change of plan in the way something the thought that the director, well, certainly the director changed it before we went just after we started shooting. But all the cars and all these things, they're done with a great deal of thought beforehand. And luckily, this became, we, we, we dubbed that colour was called Village Red. Mm. <laughs> like a farrow and ball colour. That, that was Village Red. So everything mechanical was painted that colour and the emblem was that colour, so it gave a very simple signage to, to things. And the clothes were very bright to start with, but I think there was a slight lack of faith, possibly, in, in the sort of American production side as to how bold you could really be. But in fact, often one realizes on film, the bolder you are, you can't be bold enough <laughs> in the end. But the place was so strong that, in a way, it was quite fun. And certainly the, that little red car, which 
was it a Caravelle? It was a little Renault, the 60s Renault. They were impossible to keep running, but they, <laughs> but it was superb. And we had to make a, yes, had to make a breakdown truck. But everything I tried to make, we wanted to, like we took the bumpers off everything to make them look like toy cars. Mm. So nothing looked quite real. Because you had to have real reality when you flash back to New York or places that was totally real. So everything was slightly stylized and prettified. And in a way, what was quite nice because of this slightly Art Nouveau style everywhere, a lot of the interiors that were done then were very pretty. And I remember, mm. um, what was she called? Ruth, Ruth Wilson's part. What was she called? Her uh, 313? 313, yeah, was it? Oh, God, yeah. yes, you're better off, better than I am. <laughs> um, her room, I made, I copied that, or I say copied, adapted, an Art Nouveau room in Germany, mm. which was very pretty. And I thought, well, let's cut out hearts and things. It would be, well, it was right. That you want it to be nice and obvious and simple and simple and make it look like what you'd all love to have but can't have. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, although it's visually very different to the original series, it retains that sense of alienation, mm. I think both for number six and also for the viewer. Um, we've been to Port Merion and it, it is like standing in another place in another time. It's not quite anywhere in the world. Um, and I, I think a lot of that was recreated just in a very different way. It, it did feel like it could be anywhere and yet nowhere. Well, I think we were heavily helped by... Swackerman, when you stood at night in Swackerman, it was like being in a hopper painting because a lot of the roads hadn't been modernised and they were sand. And so with no cars and lights on in windows and people mm. sitting inside, it was just, it was unreal. Yet it was real, which is quite fun, you know. <laughs> and the scenes in New York, were they also filmed in they were, South Africa? They were all done in, in South Africa, in Cape Town, yes. The one little street we had, a like a sort of coffee shop come store that we filmed in a little bodega or whatever they call those small shops. And um, it was like a sort of coffee shop, come, you know, store and people sit in a bar. And so through the window, you saw a street. And so in that, you have lots of cars just moving and stopping. And, you know, we had to get enough what appeared like they weren't, because they're not allowed to import left-hand drive cars into America, into, into South Africa, but there were quite a lot there. So that was all right. And um, it was, you know, it was, it was rather good. And some of the bits looked, I mean, it's like you go to Liverpool or Manchester, you can find bits of New York, wherever you go, in a way. And um, it worked, it worked, it worked quite well. So one of the most famous elements of the original, I think, is probably Rover, that the giant white ball that, that chases people when they try and escape the village. And there have been lots of stories from the original production where they got through dozens and dozens of weather balloons because they kept popping every yeah. time they filmed something. Um, your Rover is absolutely enormous was that mostly post-production that's post-production there were all sorts of conversations about it i think in a way you never saw probably enough of it in the story i thought from what i can remember it appears way more in one episode doesn't it down on the on, in the sea it was a sort of no but it was that it was that strangeness that was quite fun but i still think a lot of people didn't really understand the strangeness <laughs> you know you just have to go for it and make it as strange as as real and as odd as possible you know put real things in strange places. It's a bit like an art installation in a way. <laughs> it is, and I think that's that's part of the charm of The Prisoner um, and the, the, the oddness of it, the sort of almost otherworldliness of it, and the way that things are not necessarily explained. It, it keeps you guessing and keeps you thinking mm. in a way that shows which do explain everything. Um, you don't necessarily keep thinking about them afterwards. 
No. Well, actually, in a way, it's a bit, it, was, it, was, it was very good practice. They could sort of um, trial run for Doctor Who, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is very similar because there's no way you can explain a lot of what is, is going on there, but it, just, it doesn't matter. The more people don't understand it, the more they discuss it, as you're saying, you know. So um, which season of Doctor Who did you start working on? Matt, I started 2010, we were making, it was Matt Smith's second year. Uh-huh. I did seven, seven years of his last few years and then the three years of Peter Capaldi. Uh, so you did the, all the, the wonderful, um, I think the, the opening of the second series of, of the second Matt Smith series, um, all the stuff in the White House and the Yes, movie. yeah, yes. Yeah, that must have been great fun. I think it was considered a very good White House because we had American BBC America doing some filming there and they said it was better than West Wing. They <laughs> but um, then my first episode was the Michael Gambon, Catherine Jenkins Christmas special, you know, the... Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, that was the very first, that was my first openers, <laughs> which was quite dramatic. <laughs> um, so, no, it's been, you've done some pretty sort of strange and amazing things. It's, it's, been, it's been quite a run. <laughs> So going back to the uh, the mini series of the prisoner, um, what would you say was your favourite piece of design work for the show? No, my, I mean apart from it, the anchor was always a rather dramatic moment. That was quite fun. But the set for the two's palace was, I have to say, you don't get a chance to build sets that size very often. But I suppose the actual my favourite set would be the, um, the solar cafe, which everyone mm-hmm. wanted to leave. They all wanted it to be left in Cape, in Swatland. <laughs> <laughs> And everybody wanted it in their garden, you know. I mean, it was because it was based on like a, an American diner, but slightly so it was that was the American side, you see. Mm. But then it had a slightly sort of Dutch Cape Dutch feel to it because you're in that, mm. and a slightly German feel <laughs> with the doorway mm. because his wife, his mother, you know, his two's wife is German. So the, it's it was like it's just like everything one did, you tried to make a mixture of people's dreams, mm. and everyone was obviously tapped into different bits of people's dreams. I mean, we won't explain it too much. But, you know, it's that sort of feel. You are, you, you are injected with something that made you live in your dream. I don't know, to put it in a simple way, I suppose. Um, and so it was quite fun. And he put various elements together, but then try and make it a rather nice, fun design. And when it was listed, it was lovely. The opportunity of doing wonderful things in strange places is one of the joys of making films, really. So it's it's a, a really beautiful looking miniseries. I think the the design, the cinematography looks really stunning. Again, thank you so much for joining us to to talk about it. It's been really great hearing about some of the the filming and some of the thought behind the design work of it. Really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that was our interview with Michael Pickwo. We'd like to thank Michael for giving us the time to chat to him about his work on the Prisoner remake show and also some of his other projects as well. Yeah, so that rounds off our week of pods all about the Prisoner to celebrate the 50th anniversary. We hope you've enjoyed them. Yeah, we will hopefully be back soon. Um, We're trying to arrange some more things to do in the coming weeks and months Um, as we said way back in our episode zero introducing the tally ho podcast uh, we will be properly returning in 2018 to do a series of episode by episode rewatch podcasts 
Yeah, so we'd like to thank everyone who's listened so far. It's been great to get your feedback on Twitter. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at, at TFCAA or on our Facebook page, Time for Cakes and Ale, or on our website, timeforcakesandale.com. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, it always helps kind of build word about the podcast. It's been fantastic talking to you all. We'll be back soon, hopefully. And some of the other things we've got coming up, we do a Twin Peaks podcast called Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee, and there'll be a couple more episodes of that coming up very soon. So if you're a Twin Peaks fan and you've been watching The Return, do come back and have a look at those. And eventually, now that all of this has died down a little bit, we will be going back to some classic cakes and ale as well. But for now, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.